Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. How are we doing on the other side of Thanksgiving, y'all? I just created, I just committed sacrilege. I had to put half of of a chocolate pie and half of a coconut pie down the disposal because no one showed up to finish them off. Wow. Oh. But you were there to finish them off. I don't understand that. I was, but you know, I only have so much resolve. Okay. <laughs> I tried. I tried so hard. Okay. I, uh, what is your, fa- is, are those your favorite pies for Thanksgiving? Apple well, or clearly those are everyone's least favorites. Those are the ones that like, so like in, in our family, there's, there's a set of pies we make every year. Okay. And, um, but the pecking order is the pumpkin goes first. I have one nephew who demolishes an entire cherry pie. Like no one else is allowed to touch it. Wow. And then, uh, then we have an apple strudel, uh, pie that is a huge hit with everybody. Okay. It's got a custard in it. It's so good. It's like wow, a fr- I hate apple good. pie, and I love this pie. Okay. Yeah, and then the ch- the chocolate and the coconut with meringue on them. Well, they're beautiful pies, and they're delicious. And I just put them in the disposal. Okay. Mm. Well, okay, that's interesting. So your pie taxonomy is what? What's your number one choice? What's your number two choice? Personally, yes, for you personally, number one is pumpkin. Number two is coconut. Okay, JT, your pie one and two, cookies. White sheet cake. Oh my gosh, JT, are we are we surprised? Oh my are gosh, of course you could not just the give guy me with a the palate of right? a three year old. Yeah. Yeah, JT's like I don't know Do what y'all are talking about. I was eating crumble cookies. Oh yum! No, yeah, I do, I do love those. Um, okay, for yeah. me, it's so funny that you asked this question though. Okay, do do your pie. Do yours, thing. Do yours. For me, it's pecan, and then apple. That's what I, I want. Pecan. Oh, and, and I dogged on apple pie. That's fine though. I'm not like committed to it. Like philosophically, I just enjoy it. But JT on the other hand wants cookies and sheet cake. <laughs> Everybody loves those. You never put those down the disposal. Yeah. Do you dip them in Chick-fil-A sauce? Tell us the truth. I should. I will, that's a great idea. I, I, I had forgotten about this. I had a dream last night about Thanksgiving, a nightmare actually. And I had forgotten about it. Like, so like right now and like parts of it are coming back to me. I'm going to, I'll tell, I can't, dreams don't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense what happened in my dream. But I, I like start, I have a big green egg. That's what I cook the turkeys on normally. Mm-hmm. And I like had it going and I was like, I'm just going to go play golf. And so I went and played golf, but forgot to put the turkey on before I left, realized it nine holes in. Somehow didn't have my keys with me. Macy had them. She had to come bring them to me. I didn't tell her about the turkey. We have like all of our, 
like all of our friends are in our home and I, I get home from playing golf and the turkey is not on the big green egg and I am terrified. So I just torch the thing. Like I get the big green egg up to like 600 degrees, get the turkey done in 30 minutes and serve it to people. That was, yeah. I lived that. Like that was my lived experience nice. within the last 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. good. Um, so much stress around Thanksgiving. There's there, no there doubt. Can be. There, there can, can be. indeed be. Well, mm-hmm. um, you know where, where where there's not stress in the contributions for the sanctuary. Oh man, uh, <laughs> I'm so, sorry. I'm, so I, next season, I'm getting worse. Next season, I'm going to stop that. Or better. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, we have been covering Exodus this season, and we're going to be covering Exodus next season as well. I mean, the the story doesn't end where we're ending today in this season. We have a couple of Q and A episodes that are coming up over the next uh, few weeks. But after that, as we head towards the spring, we'll jump into the back half, the story of Exodus, and we'll continue that journey. As we've been exploring it, the goal has not been to kind of go line by line through Exodus, but as we trace the story that we would explore themes that emerge in Exodus that ripple both before and beyond. So doing what's called biblical theology, looking at the storyline of Exodus and tracing the the story there uh, through themes, through types, uh, through doctrine, across the story of the Bible, both in Genesis that precedes the book of Exodus and then the rest of the story after Exodus. But today we're looking at Exodus 25. I'm going to read verses 1 through nine. And these are chapters, I just want to say at the outset, these are chapters that I have found are easy when you're reading through the book of Exodus to begin to jump on autopilot, just to kind of set yourself on cruise control and read through these with maybe less attention. I want to encourage you, there might be something for us here um, to learn about who God is, about his plan in the world. Uh, And so maybe today can be helpful new lenses for you as you think through some of the chapters that are easier to just kind of gloss over. So let me get us started by reading Exodus 25 verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, this is uh, this is not only the contributions for the sanctuary. This is my shopping list for Hobby Lobby. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there's uh, there's some crafting. Did you make yourself a sweet ephod to wear on? <laughs> I thought about it with some with some extra goat hair. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> now we so far have found that Yahweh has brought the people of Abraham, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. In so doing, they plundered the Egyptians. God demonstrated His power over the fall false gods of Egypt. We've explored in the story so far themes of deliverance, redemption, the role of the law. Uh, We saw God give the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. We've already heard some other laws that go beyond in real application of the Ten Commandments to different uh, economic, social, religious, sacrificial sorts of lanes. And now after the covenant is confirmed in Exodus 24, which we covered last episode, uh, now we're seeing God give detailed instructions for the construction 
of a sanctuary, of a place of worship mm -hmm. for Israel. Let, let's start here, JT and Jim. Why does God want to dwell with his people? Is this a new mode, so to speak, of God's engagement with his people? Yes. No, it's not. Uh, this is something we've been talking about the whole time. I mean, the story of the Bible. I think uh, I have this note written in my Bible. I actually picked up, I love picking up Bibles that I've used in the past. I, I have a new Bible that I'm using. This is one that I used actually when we built the training program and we would go through, through this and right next to verse eight, which again, verse eight says this, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Right next to that line I have, this is the story of the Bible in micro. Mm -hmm. This is the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end, God dwelling with his people. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 1. This is what we see here in Exodus. This is what we see in John 1, verse mm -hmm. uh, uh, chapter 1. Mm -hmm. This is what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. So mm -hmm. the whole story of Scripture is telling us this story of how is God going to dwell in his with his creation specifically with his image bearers uh, and receive glory so this this is one of those things kyle i resonate with you before i began to understand these chapters this is an autopilot chapter what does this have to do with me right. the author of hebrews has something to say about that which we'll probably get to at some point <laughs> later but this this has everything to do with the whole story of the bible mm -hmm. and truly the hope of humanity to live quorum deo or in the presence of god in in the face of god enjoying his presence mm -hmm. that's right mm -hmm. so it's not new it's not a new, th it, like not, no. God wants to dwell with his people, right? I mean, um, mm -hmm. Jen, I, I wonder, I'm, and I'm giving you a softball here um, based off of where <laughs> you've been. I wonder, we know that in the beginning of the story that it seems mm -hmm. as if God has created to, the earth to dwell with his people. At the mm -hmm. end of the story in Revelation, is there any acknowledgement that God continues to want to dwell with his people? Mm, why, yes, yes, Kyle, there certainly is. <laughs> so if you think about the the garden scene in Genesis 1 and 2 and into chapter 3, um, we see that the garden is a small part of the creation as a whole, and it is a place where God meets with the man and the woman, and he gives them the task and the honor, really, of representing him and of, of ruling over the creation. And then that all gets messed up in Genesis chapter three. And we see the degradation of the creation over years and years and years. And we're told in the New Testament that creation groans in expectation of, of, of the renewal of all things. Um, and so we should be waiting with expectation for what we find in the book of Revelation, which ends up being a, a place where God can once again finally and fully dwell with his people. But now it's a little different. It's not two people. Um, it's it's every nation, tribe, and tongue. When we see the the New Jerusalem descending like a bride, mm -hmm. uh, there are gates that face the four compass directions, three gates facing each direction to welcome in um, those who are believers from the ends of the earth. The the size that is given to describe it, um, I think it's 12,000 stadia. I should have turned there before we started um, talking about it, but uh, is actually, if you convert that into miles, is uh, approximately the size of the known Hellenistic world at the time that huh. Revelation is written. So in huh. other words, saying the gospel has now gone to the ends of the earth. It has happened. It is done. It is finished, to, to borrow the, the language elsewhere in Scripture. So when we see the New Jerusalem descend, um, you look at the outside, and it's a city. We hear these same descriptions of 
precious stones um, and and valuable things. Only only it's amplified. Um, we hear measurements that echo measurements of the tabernacle, uh, and then when we get inside. We are surprised somewhat to find that though the outside looks like a city, the inside looks a lot like a garden. Um, but now it is a garden that fills the whole world. Yes. And and that right there is a point that I think is significant to really exploring the wonder of these chapters. The contributions for the mm-hmm. sanctuary that are allotted here, the design that's going into it is not just um, – there. It's it's lavish, but it's not like um, it's not lavish for arbitrary reasons. It's storytelling. Right. This is not mm-hmm. a megalomaniac billionaire mm-hmm. having a penthouse that has a gold <laughs> toilet. That's not what the contributions of the sanctuary are about. It is um, for the purpose of telling a story about the world, mm-hmm. and I. I think this is often missed in these chapters and it's missed when we think about what we call like the, the, you know, we've, we've referred to it as the liturgical dimension of Israel's life and their worship. There's a lot of instruction Mm -hmm. that's being given here about the mode and the manner and the aesthetics or the beauty of Israel's worship in the tabernacle. And I think it can feel like, wow, is this just, um, is this just the vanity of God. Um, A vanity project. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And and I can understand why it feels tempting to go in that direction. But I think a couple of things are important to remember here. One, um, Israel is being invited to give over the good gifts that God has given them as an act of worship and praise. It's a Mm -hmm. reminder to them that they... They belong to the Lord and everything mm-hmm. that they are, everything they have belongs to the Lord. This is a reminder that we know Israel will be quick to forget because there is some element of the treasure they plundered from Egypt that they're going to boil down as quick as possible to make into a golden calf. So mm-hmm. Israel is primed to give over the good things that God has given to them and freeing them from slavery. He's just giving them the proper place to render that. He's giving them the proper place to give that, which is an offering to him and his presence. I think the second thing is to remember that this is supposed to be a place where um, in the midst of a broken world, because it's no longer the unbroken garden, Mm -hmm. God's dwelling with his people now. There is a change here. This is the most proximate way that God is going to dwell with his people since the Garden of Eden. And yet something fundamentally has changed, not in God, but in humanity and the world, which is that Mm -hmm. the Garden's presence was not tainted by the impact of sin. But now the world is broken by the impact of sin, which means there needs to be some sacred, sanctified places that are Mm -hmm. kept pure in a way that the rest of the world is not, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a purification that has to happen um, to enter into God's presence that was not true for Adam and Eve in the garden prior to the fall. Everything Jen said about Revelation is right, but uh, not but, but in addition to (laughs) what the author of Hebrews is doing before he even points to the future hope that we have in a tabernacle that's going to come down in heaven meeting earth. Mm -hmm. He even talks about how the incarnation is a Mm -hmm. type of this, how the... So I was even just rereading parts of it right now. Um, You know, so if you look back at verse eight, 
uh, in verse 9, which I just read a second ago, and let them make for me sanctuary that I could dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern. Mm -hmm. That word pattern is almost like blueprints. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is what exists somewhere else, and I'm giving you the blueprint so that you could have a model of it on earth, whether that's Eden or whether it's the heavenly places uh, where God is currently dwelling. So what God is giving Moses is... This is what home looks like. Mm-hmm. This is this is where you're intent you're supposed to dwell, but it is a temporary one. It's just a pattern. It's almost like a here's where you're going to live for a while until I make all things new. And the things that we see here, we're we're going to go through them here in a minute, but it's things like a tabernacle, a high priest, a sacrifice of blood, but a temporary redemption. This is something that they're having to do often and regularly. And if you if you go over to the author of Hebrews, this is he's actually providing commentary exactly on these passages mm-hmm. in chapter 9. I won't read the whole thing, but just parts of it. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to that have come, uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent. So the author of Hebrews is, is really riffing on John uh, chapter one, that he is the one who skenaod, or that that's the word that the Greek word for tabernacle. He dwelt among us. Like he put Christ's incarnation is the putting on of a tently body so that he can dwell with his people again. He is the high priest of better or good things. And rather than entering into this tabernacle with the blood of goats and rams and bulls, he enters in with his own blood to provide an eternal redemption. And so when we're reading these passages, the author of Hebrews would say, pay attention, pay attention, because this is the pattern that you're going to see unfold throughout the the story of redemption, which is going to be fulfilled in the person of Christ. But here's what's interesting. One of my buddies from seminary went and did his PhD at the University of Cambridge on this passage right here. Mm. And he actually argues, uh, like most evangelicals, if we were asked the question, where does atonement take place? Uh, we would say, well, the cross of Jesus Christ. This is this is where we are atoned for sin. And that's not not true. That's that's absolutely true. But he argues one of the things that we miss that he would highlight here in this passage, it's actually not primarily at the cross. It's in the ascension. Mm-hmm. When Jesus ascends into the actual holy of holies, mm-hmm. the actual tabernacle, which is what he says here, um, uh, how much, verse 14, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, that means offered himself in the ascension. So he is now the, he's now the high priest. He is the lamb himself offering mm-hmm. a sacrifice of blood to his father in the heavenly places, which makes him the mediator right now of this better covenant. And this mediator again, now to point to what Jen so beautifully said, is one day going to come in this 12,000 foot stadia or cubit stadia and come back and bring that pattern to earth forever. Mm-hmm. Where I found the Bible project guys so helpful, the story of the Bible is heaven coming back to earth. Yes. That's mm-hmm. ultimately what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. This pattern that we see here in Exodus, that we see in the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ will one day be our eternal reality here on earth, not as a pattern, but as a reality. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, Th- there's a concept uh, that has been really helpful to me related to the design of the tabernacle to help understand what's happening when the tabernacle is talked about elsewhere in Scripture, and that is the idea of what realities are being represented in the design. And so mm-hmm. you have like these three layers. You have the outer court. You have the outer court where the the sacrifice is taking place at the br- bronze altar, and you've got the bronze laver, and everything in in that area is made of sort of everyday materials, bronze. And then um, when you get into the holy place, all of a sudden everything is covered in gold. And that should be significant. All of the the the, the costliness and the beauty, everything goes up. Not only that, but in the holy place, 
we find um, echoes of the garden very explicitly. You have the lampstand that looks like very much like the tree of life. Um, you have light mm-hmm. in the darkness. Um, you have uh, provision. You have the the table of showbread provision for the twelve tribes the, for the for the children of God. Um, you have then this altar of incense, which is. Ex- it's very close in design to the brazen altar that was in the outer court, uh, but it's covered in gold. And we're t- we begin to understand that what is happening inside the tent is the heavenly interpretation of what is happening on earth that we see in the outer court. So in other words, the sacrifice that's offered on the bronze altar is bloody, smelly, confusing. Uh, you know, there would be sounds and sights that are that are just a lot for the senses out there. But then in the interior, you've got this heavily layered structure. It's going to be, the sound of all that is going to be muffled or diminished. There are scents that are beautiful instead of terrifying. Um, and so mm-hmm. we begin to understand that what the tabernacle wants to communicate is, hey, there is this earthly reality that you are living in, but there is a parallel heavenly reality that will one day be completely clear to you. Um, and is and 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 so you have the the holy place that is giving a vision of our sacrifices to God, how they look in heaven. And then you have the holy of holies, which is that place of ultimate access to God. So when we get to Revelation, we find that the whole earth becomes that place of ultimate access. It is the holy mm-hmm. of holies for yes. everyone. So there are all, you know, when, when it says God has raised it up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places, it's saying, hey, I get it. You're still here on earth. You're yeah. in the outer courtyard and things are confusing and terrible. But the heavenly reality is that you are already united. Mm-hmm. I'm getting, I'm stepping into Kyle's territory here, united with Christ. And and in a spiritual sense, the what we will see come to pass in fullness and revelation is already true for the children of God. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. 
To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. I think it's important to note here, um, and we're, we're kind of circling it a little bit, and this is something we've talked about before, that the tabernacle will not be, the tabernacle will be the place of God's blessed presence, his special presence with his people. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the, it's not the place that is constraining the presence of God, meaning the presence right. of God is not right. going to be geolocated at the tabernacle in terms of it being constrained. The scriptures are clear from beginning to end. God cannot be constrained in a temple made by hand. Like he's omnipresent. God is not going Mm -hmm. to be confined to the tabernacle, but the tabernacle will be the special meeting place of God with man at this period in this moment in the history of redemption. And there is something special that will be happening at the tabernacle, which one day will happen at the temple, which will not be happening elsewhere in the world. And this is a moment in the history of redemption. And from it, we should, I think, see two things. One, God isn't confined to a place. Um, uh, His omnipresence isn't constrained in that way, but there there is a special meeting place um, between God and man. And what is a shadow, as Jim was just saying, in the tabernacle and in the temple will be brought to fulfillment and fullness in the person of Christ. Right, mm-hmm. who who he, who will say, "I'm going to tear down this very temple and bring it back in three days." Right? It's like I am that. I have come to tabernacle among you. The ministry of Jesus is invoking throughout that what the tabernacle was imperfectly, what the temple was imperfectly, is perfectly fulfilled in Christ Himself. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is significant for us because we know that the ornate design of the tabernacle and of the temple, for that matter, which will come later is a picture to us of the wonderful things that are in Christ. You know, the tabernacle is ornately designed, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is not in the tabernacle, it's in Christ Jesus. And so when we are journeying through the contributions for the sanctuary and the tabernacle, when when we're journeying through these chapters in Exodus, not to go too application heavy too quickly, I don't want to fall into ill repute with my more inductive Bible study uh, driven peers, but I think that a devotional approach to consider chapters that can feel rather dry and detached is to ask yourself this. If this is the ornate design, if this is what the tabernacle is filled with, these things, these artifacts of wonder and of majesty, how much greater are the things and the blessings that are filled in Christ, that are Mm -hmm. satisfied in Christ? Mm -hmm. The sanctuary is supposed to leave us going, this is a pretty majestic tent. How much more Mm -hmm. majestic is the Lord, right? There's a sense in which it's supposed Mm -hmm. to direct our gaze upward. Uh, I'm not somebody who believes that church architecture has to, you know, be there for us to worship appropriately. But if you've ever stepped foot into- Doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. If you've ever stepped foot into <laughs> a very old sanctuary- it does if it requires indulgences. <laughs> well, <Okay>. that's true. <laughs> but if you've ever stepped foot in, in, inside of a very large sanctuary, your eyes mm-hmm. are like, they're driven up. Mm-hmm. And that's by design. The architecture of some of these majestic sanctuaries mm-hmm. that you can find mm-hmm. largely in Central and Western Europe, but in other older places throughout the world, are meant, they're engineered to direct your attention mm-hmm. up. And the sanctuary, too, was supposed to do this. 
I do think that it's a beautiful sign of God's grace and kindness that the sanctuary, this tabernacle, is a tent. Um, JT, we've talked about this before, but maybe could you just say a couple of things about the kindness of God in giving his people a dwelling like a tent? Why is that significant when we think about God's accommodation to his people? Yeah, I mean, what we see throughout Scripture theologically is God is always accommodating to his people by coming to them in ways and means that they can understand. <laughs> Israel's used to dwelling in tents and the fact that God would come to them in a tent, or even when we think about some other parallels uh, if, of the New Testament being written in Koine Greek, a very common language, uh, God is always coming to his people in ways that they can comprehend, in ways that they can understand. God isn't coming to his people in this instance uh, in some something that they wouldn't understand, like perhaps an Egyptian pyramid. That would have been something that's they've seen it, but that's not them. That's not who they are. God is coming to them in a way that they can speak, in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can build, in a way that they can uh, comprehend and apprehend God. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to something you just said, Kyle, because I think it's so true, whether it's related to, to architecture, uh, but that's also true of just the body of Christ, the church, not just in the buildings we meet in, but but Paul makes this analogy in reference several times to new, in his New Testament epistles, you are the body of Christ. And that isn't like some just metaphor, for, I mean, it's a metaphor, but it's not like some distant metaphor for him. He's saying something very specific. You are now the dwelling place of God with man, because Jesus has ascended into the heavens and given you personally as a follower of Christ and corporately as Christians, the presence of God. Another picture he uses is you are, y'all are the temple mm-hmm. of Christ on earth. And so one of the things, I loved what you said about architecture, Kyle, it's designed and the tent is also designed to draw our gaze up, whether that's to the Holy of Holies or to some kind of altar or tabernacle. The church as the people of God is also designed to draw our attention up. Uh, Jesus, I think, is referencing things like this when he says they should know you by your love for one another, Mm -hmm. that uh, we as the people of God who commune with God and are indwelt by the presence of God and are the tabernacling presence of God. Like, I don't want to over-torque this reference, but God is present everywhere, true, omnipresence, but also God is specifically present with his people when they gather together, worship Jesus, read God's word, preach God's word, sing God's word, love one another, care for one another. Uh, and well, it, maybe it's on my mind because this week at church, I'm preaching on the church as a family of God and just thinking about the importance of how the gospel connects to the people of God being this new family that is actually the tabernacling presence of God on earth. These mm-hmm. this little, these little new Jerusalems that we're planting all over the world where you can enjoy the presence of King Jesus yeah. by his spirit with God's people. And so it isn't just architecture that draws our gaze up. It's the way we treat one another that draws our gaze up. That's exactly right. So I got to jump in there. So we have, you know, the when you talk about God's specific presence, one of the ways that that's described is his manifest presence. In other words, mm-hmm. that he's, he's, it's a, it's a, it's a condescension in the sense that like we are very aware of his presence in a way that we aren't otherwise. And that's what you see in the Old Testament when the tabernacle is completed and the spirit descends and we see see that, you know, in, in multiple places. So John, you know, who who is obsessed with Genesis and Exodus and um, uses the tabernacle language to speak of Jesus specifically, it was that he tabernacled among us, that, that opening phrase at the beginning of his gospel says this in 1 John 4. He says, uh, this is 1 John 4, 9 and uh, through 12. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So it was visible 
made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So Christ, in a very tangible way, probably the most tangible way since the garden, is the shows us the manifest presence of God in our midst. But then he goes on mm-hmm. to say, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, the manifest presence of God in the way that we demonstrate love to one another is displayed to the world around us in his church. That's right. That's right. And and, and just to land the plane here, when we read these chapters, there is an invitation for us to wonder at the kindness of God who not only Mm -hmm. delivers his people from something, but invites them into something. Um, God has taken them out of Egypt and he is going to bring Mm -hmm. them into the promised land. But the place that God invites them to inhabit before he gives them the land, something that we'll see Moses tell God in his intercession after the golden calf, they don't want the land without, is before God invites them to make their home in a new land flowing with milk and honey, he invites them to make their home in his presence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's often <clears throat> neglected in the story of the Exodus is that when God is giving the best habitat he can give for Israel, it's not primarily the promised land. It is fundamentally his presence and living in the presence of God. And the contributions for the sanctuary, the detailed accounts we get of the design of the ark and the lampstands and what the tabernacle is going to look like and how it's going to work and what the altar should be like is an invitation for us to marvel at the kindness of God who delights in dwelling with his people. We hope- Can I add- Oh, oh, I was, ah, I was about I just to have ta- add one no, more thing. No, don't do it. Do it. No, no, one go more. for it. JT's flipping pages too, so we may keep everybody here all day. Yeah. I do think it's worth noting that we need to ask, hey, where do these contributions come from? Like, where did they get all the loot? And um, the, Give me the loot. It's the, spoils, it's the spoils of Egypt, right? And I think that there's something important to note there about the way that God brings glory to himself. He glorifies himself even through the treasures of his enemies. Basically, they plunder Egypt to bring glory to God. Now we're going to see that they hit a bump along the way. Uh, we get to the story of the golden calf. But there's significance mm-hmm. there for us to understand when we get to Revelation, because when we hear about God making all things new, there's a. T- I've heard people say, yeah, he's just going to burn all this down so we can treat all this however we want. Uh, but what God does in Revelation is similar to what he does here in the wilderness, he takes what was misused and abused and and, and suffered from misattribution, and he reattributes it to its rightful author, and he repurposes it to bring glory to him as it was meant to all along. And so I think there's a lot, I actually find that to be more beautiful than him burning everything down and starting over again. It's like when when the scriptures say that he brings beauty from ashes, um, he truly does. And and that is in a very real sense, um, when we talk about the upside down kingdom, this mm-hmm. is another expression of it where he's able to take even that which was offered to uh, idols and turn it into what it was what it was meant to be used for all along. And what a beautiful thing for us as believers who 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 know that we are now the temple to know that he can do the same thing with us. He can take mm. everything in our past and he can turn it for his glory. 
JT, did you want to add to that? I don't want to cut you off like I was about That's to cut exactly Jen what off. I was going to say. Oh, boom. <laughs> word for word. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Uh, well, we hope this season you've enjoyed the discussion. We have a couple of episodes left for this season on Q&A episodes. And then we have some surprise releases as well. You know, we always try to sprinkle some of those in over the holidays. Uh, and then we'll kick back up in January, mid-January with Exploring Exodus, the back half of the story of Exodus. Uh, next episode will be our Q&A. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and drop a question in your, in your review, we'd be glad to consider it for the next episode. You can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook. Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you may have heard about the great resources or products earlier in the show. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to our sponsors webpage on the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, products that we vet and we believe in. If you want to see some behind the scenes stuff or help make these podcasts possible, you can go to see trainingthechurch.com slash support. We encourage you to check out our sister show, Tiny Theologians or the Family Discipleship Podcast. Uh, they've just wrapped up uh, some excellent seasons. Go take a look at those or go discover starting place with Elizabeth Woodson. We hope you enjoyed the discussion on today's episode. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.